Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. When I look back over my life, one of the most interesting creative entrepreneurs I've crossed paths with is Remo Jeffrey. If you lived in Sydney in the late 80s and early 90s, you'd probably remember his iconic Remo General Store on Oxford Street, which is still going in an online capacity. Remo graduated with commerce and law degrees from New South Wales Uni and then an MBA with top honours from Columbia University's Graduate School of Business in New York. But after working with the law firm for a while, he decided to follow his dream of a more creative life. Entrepreneur, retail merchant, brand builder, creative strategist. That's how the CV reads. But really, Remo's one of those creative thinkers that can apply his mind to any endeavor and find the smartest way forward. In 2009, Remo became the licensee and has been director for TEDx Sydney, an annual flagship TEDx event, which has become Australia's leading ideas platform and actually sets the gold standard for TEDx events globally. Remo is a big-hearted optimist with a ready smile and irrepressible enthusiasm toward his latest endeavour and actually life in general. Please welcome to The Blank Canvas, Remo Giffray. Good morning. Good morning, Lee. Thanks for coming along to my new pad. No, it's beautiful. It's very tropical. You're the guinea pig. Very Balinese. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I've been reading your book the last few days. It's incredible. Yeah, I had fun putting that together, I have to say. It was, um, well, ever since I started doing my own thing in the 80s, a lot of people have said, oh, you know, when something remarkable or tragic or wonderful happened, That'll go into the book, you know, and said, yeah, ha, 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 became kind of like a running joke. Of course, I never had any concrete plans to write a book, but I was at the um, TED conference in 2014 and I was at one of the sort of cocktail parties and I was sitting next to this woman, uh, Eileen Gittens, who was the founder and CEO of something called Blurb, which is like a self-publishing platform used by a lot of photographers to kind of create one-off books of their works. And they have a production model where they'll produce it, you know, just print run of one. And uh, I was talking to her and she said, Rima, it sounds like you've got a good story to tell. Why don't you publish your book on our platform? And in fact, if you're happy to do that, then um, I'm willing to underwrite a print run of say 10,000 copies and um, you can just pay me back from the proceeds of your Kickstarter campaign. And I said, oh, so I'm having a Kickstarter campaign? (laughs) And that was it really. But that was in, um, I don't know, April or May. But the only condition was she wanted to be able to use it as part of a promotion. So I had to write it, design it, deliver it as a high-res PDF by August. So tight time frame. But got to love a deadline, right? Totally. Mate, reading through it, it occurred to me what an impact on popular culture you've had, particularly in Sydney. I lived in Darlinghurst in the 80s and then Paddington and then Bondi and, you know, around the east suburbs and then I went away. I've sort of been in in the US and Melbourne for about 20 years. But I'd sort of forgotten about you and your legacy until just recently coming back to Bondi and driving down Oxford Street and I'd glance at the, the window where the, the iconic corner, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, window was, which you'd change each week. Mm. And um, you can tell us a little bit about that in a minute. But, yeah, all the memories just sort of started coming flooding back. And then reading the book, I'm like, oh, my God, you know, every celebration, every birthday, every Christmas, every time you needed to buy a gift, every time you wanted something special – like Remo General Store was the place to go and yeah. you had handpicked these incredible trinkets, items, games, T-shirts, whatever from all over the world. Mm. I'm telling people who aren't aware or weren't yes. around at the time yeah. and you created Which is this- most people, by the way. You know, like if you're, <laughs> over, if you're over 40, you have a fairly good idea of what it was and why it was a phenomenon or maybe not why but that it was. Yeah. Um, but if you're younger than that, it, it's a bit of a head scratcher. Like, well, so it was just a shop. What was the big deal? You know, so yeah, 
Yeah, well, our kids who are now, you know, sort of growing up with internet shopping and yeah. home delivery and all well, the rest Kate, of it. Kate tells me that your daughter Gypsy's wearing a Remo original uh, charm bracelet. So, Is that right? Yeah. Oh, that wow. That chunky You're silver thing that Kate loves as she passed on to Gypsy. So she's got my logo on what? her wrist. What? That is wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. What a great way to walk in. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, it's a marvellous thing. And I I mean, I knew you and, you know, I think we had, had a meal like once back then, but we crossed paths a lot. Very close to where we are here, right? Yeah. Uh, Tamarama when we lived on Kenneth that, Street. That's right. Yeah. But, I, you know, I didn't know much about your background and reading your book, it kind of blew my mind. You went to uni, you did law or commerce, you got an MBA. You did the whole kind of academic high-achieving ducks of school path yeah. and then you've come out and you've – Gone and opened a store Become a on shopkeeper, much, much that, to the confusion of my mother at the time. That, but, that's uh, right. So, yeah, what happened and, and how does that happen? It happens, you know, I have an interest in design, probably genetic interest in design. My father was um, an industrialist, but he designed most of the things that he ended up manufacturing in factories, whether that was cosmetic packaging or aluminium furniture or, or what have you. And... Um, you know, the most interesting thing you can design is your own life. That's the most fun thing to design. And I just didn't like the way things were turning out on that sort of corporate traditional track. So really the decision to, armed with these three Ivy League degree uh, and um, all of this um, momentum and prospects in that space here back in Australia, having lived in New York while I was doing my MBA, I just um, came to the conclusion that I just couldn't live that life, that it wasn't going to be something that would give me joy. And that's why I took over this lease of a five and dime Greek family run you know, shop on that very prominent corner of Crown and Oxford Street in that beautiful Victorian building. And there was no like grand plan. It was more of a desperation <laughs> the an stumbling act entrepreneur. An act of desperation. It was, okay, so I might not live a large life, but at least I can live a small life that gives me joy. And to do that, what is that going to be? And so I tried to think back over the recent history, the things that had excited me. That was like Keith Haring's artwork in New York City, Keel's Pharmacy on the Lower East Side, and that whole eccentricity of their family and product development vision this brand of leather from Florence called Il Bizanti and a couple of shops in the East Village that were very interestingly curated and there was a whole range of things. So I thought, gee, I wonder if I actually just aggregated all of that into a space here in Sydney, whether there'd be enough people for whom that would also be interesting, who would maybe you know buy some stuff from time to time enough to sustain my small but passionate life. So that was the, that was the theory um, and took over the corner – at the time, Darlinghurst was a really interesting community of artists and designers who were living in squats and um, doing interesting work. And uh, the store ultimately ended up functioning as a platform for those people as well. It was like an offline Etsy. <laughs> so we had a contemporary design department which ended up selling the jewellery and the crowns and the furniture and the one-off stuff that the artists who are squatting in the Sergeant Pies building around the corner would be producing, you know. So it benefited from all of that contemporary energy that at the time was manifest in Darlinghurst. It's a wonderful story and just career change stories of any kind, mm. even though you hadn't gone out and kind of forged the career in law or commerce, but you'd, you know, done the degrees. Yeah. You'd done the hard yards. I actually worked for a lawyer for Baker and McKenzie Global Law Firm for about a split second. And uh, they liked me, actually, even though my timesheets were a joke. You know, I'd more often put a smiley face on it than I would uh, a breakdown <laughs> of how I'd done seven billable hours in a day. Um, but what happened there is that early on, I realised that this, the firm was growing quite quickly here in Australia and was opening an office in Melbourne and there was one in Sydney that was growing and there was like an internal communications culture transfer issue. So I proposed to the managing partners that I found and edit a weekly internal newsletter called Memorandum. <laughs> and they kind of said, yeah, kid, go away, knock yourself out. But it, it became phenomenally popular 
within the firm to the point where I do remember the Thursday afternoon drop where this double-sided full-scap newsletter would be deposited on everyone's desk. And the joy of walking through the four floors of the firm in those days at the AMP Centre in Sydney and seeing that all work had stopped and everyone was reading their memorandum newsletter. So I'm a show-off and I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So tell me about your parents, your dad, an Italian migrant who came here with kind of nothing and opened a flower store and kind of, you know, worked his ass off and, yeah. and made kind of a huge success. classic story of the, you know, opportunity-seeking Sicilian 14-year-old, you know, going to the other side of the world to, to make a start and because there was no opportunity there and... I think he had good instincts and good work ethic and, you know, luck always helps too. And he, he became a very established guy in Sydney in the, you know, in the 30s. You know, so by the time he was 21, he was like hanging out at Romano's nightclub and doing the artwork for his mate Romano. And, you know, like yeah, he, right. he was a, you know, a non-criminal version of the made man in Sydney. But, you know, he wasn't driven as I'm not driven by money. So he was actually very uh, generous and had an interesting philanthropic uh, career as well in parallel. Founded what has become Coasit, which is the uh, Italian welfare government-funded agency that looks after and places Italian migrants when they come to this country. So, Wow, cool. So that was um, a big passion of his. Yeah, right, right. Tell me about school. What kind of kid were you at school? Were you creative? I know you were ducks of the school, but were you a geek? Were you creative? Were you sporty? What was... I was a participator in, in, you know, sport. I had a fairly low attention span, so I enjoyed the company of all of the subcultures on the playground. So I would spend time with the geeks. I'd spend time with the wogs. I'd spend time with the surfies. I'd spend time with the jocks. Uh, so I actually ended up being the only person that everybody knew, right? So I think probably the accidental school captain because I was the, the only name that everyone was aware of. But uh, I went to school in this neighbourhood actually up on the hill at the Christian Brothers Catholic School, Waverley College. You know, it wasn't a fancy private school. I, I think all of the sort of the religious side of it just washed over me. It didn't resonate with me at all. I kind of was able to ignore that. I had a happy experience. I, I did well academically all through my school year. It's kind of when I went to university, I sort of discovered my heavy-duty social life and probably dropped off academically there for a few years. But um, I got it back again at business school. So That's cool. It's like reading your book and looking at the career you've carved out, it's kind of like your greatest skill is your ability to communicate, to Whatever yeah. kind of person, whether it's design world, the academic world, the events world, that seems to be a common thread. Is yeah. that something that you just kind of had the gift of the gab as a kid or is that something you um, just, you know, developed along the way? Um, good question. Um, do I know the answer to that? I think I had the curiosity to hear people's story. Maybe, if anything, I've lost a bit of that curiosity as I've got older, but I do recall being in my late teens, spending a lot of time in bars, talking to a lot of people about their lives and their stories and having sort of an insatiable hunger to do that every night of the week, basically. Yeah. That was a lot of alcohol and a lot of conversation. <laughs> do you think, like, if there was one skill you could have that you could have a fantastic uh, level of skill at, would it be communication? Is it, do you think that's the key to your success or anybody's success? I don't know if it's a skill, but I think optimism is the thing that will fuel your perseverance because you'll need the perseverance. So being able to see the silver linings, that is an important skill, I think. And I'm not clear... To one of your earlier questions, whether or not that is innate or can be a partially learned trait, I'm not sure. The sort of sense that it'll be all right in the end, and if it's not all right, it's not the end. Yeah. Yeah, well, definitely in 2020 and 2021, uh, that, that ability, it's a good thing to have the ability to look well, at the silver had, lining, isn't it? We've just had a presidential inauguration after a pretty unusual four or five years there in US politics. and. You know, so I think there is global zeitgeist of optimism at the moment, which yeah. will be interesting to see how that manifests in 2021 for everybody. Yeah, indeed. 
Mate, I loved your business card that you had when you were 18. Philosopher, poet, people's friend. That's what was on the <laughs> yes. on, on your business card in 1978. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is gold. I yeah. love that. That was a, maybe that was just an elaborate way to try to uh, you know pick up women in uh, at parties and in bars. But um, what was yeah. the print run? Uh, good call. I seem to have a fair few of them lying around, so I'm sure I over over ordered. Let's <laughs> let's say 250. Oh, I love it. One of the other really interesting things I found from reading your book, you've almost made it well, certainly with the general store you had a way of finding what was cool and what was not, but kind of doing it in a way that didn't alienate people who weren't cool. Yeah. Was that something you kind of had a goal of like, I'm going to find these things are cool? Like how did that come about? Yeah, no, I was very attracted to that have your cake and eat it too, appeal generally, do something cool, but don't exclude anybody, be inclusive. There were, you know, brands at the time like Sony, who had this kind of cool image yet were fairly ubiquitous in the mass market as well. So I thought there were examples of brands that managed to retain that kind of cool edge and yet had this broad appeal. You know, Darlinghurst was a fairly gritty inner city. Um, It was also the gay centre of Sydney, so a lot of our customers were from that community. But I never wanted it to, you know, just to appeal to those tribes, designers, inner city, urban professionals, you know. So when when we would send out catalogs and then when I would come down to the store floor and see the seas of purple hair and women from the Country Women's Association, whatever, it gave me great pleasure to know that what we were doing was appealing very broadly, you know. So you can do it and I think you can still do it. Yeah. Um, you can have a brand with street credibility and yet um, have it as an inclusive brand. You know, maybe Ikea is is a pretty good example of that, I think. You don't see an Ikea still at someone's place and think, what a dag, you know. No, no, you're absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right. And talking of the catalogues there, they were a phenomenon of their own and Ikea mm. obviously have these legendary catalogues as well. Yeah. Uh, Give us an insight into how long it took to create those catalogues and how key they were to the business. They were very key. In some ways, the catalogue was better than the store, you know, because the catalogue could be designed down to the last millimetre and I had a strong visual sensibility and I was working with designers, Jeffrey Gifford, Richard Allen, you know, in those early days had something to do with it. So, you know, we could really design the hell out of this thing and people would receive it, this combination of words and pictures, and then come into the store and, you know, I wouldn't say they'd be disappointed, but I think the catalogue was ahead of the store always. But it started off as a newsletter, a sort of a Christmas gift guide newsletter. Uh, Then the next year it became a bit more elaborate and the next year, the third or fourth year, it became this like full-blown, full-colour, very expensive thing. I think at one point, we were sending nearly 100,000 of them out all over the world and domestically. And unfortunately, from a resource point of view, and you know, the marketing and the appeal of the business ran way ahead of its ability to administer itself. And that was you know, my fault because I was a lot of yin with no yang. You know, they had a great passion for the product, like a very strong vision of where it could go and a great capacity to be able to create desire and build top-line sales, but not so good about knowing, you know, how much inventory I should be holding or what the labour cost should be and, you know, or what the information system should be to help us uh, manage our cash flow. So come catalogue time, there'd be a pot of money and it would be like, well, what do we spend it on? The catalogue or the merchandise that we're trying to sell from the catalogue? And the catalogue would normally win and then people would order all of these things, which we hadn't had the money to actually order until the orders started coming in from the catalogue. So it was kind of not a great way of creating desire for stuff that you then don't have. Oh, it must have been stressful. Oh, there was a lot of stress. My 30s were a very stressful block of life for me. How did you survive the ultimately failure of the business? How did you get through that and handle the stress and come out the other side? It was difficult at the time, especially when your name is associated with the business and you know that it's failed for all the wrong reasons, that actually there's still galloping demand for the brand, but 
for structural and admin and financial reasons has just kind of come a cropper. My daughter was born on the day that the business went into its first administration. So part of the survival tactic was that the reality kick that children give you and home life and uh, also, you know, the optimism and the knowledge that, yeah, that screwed up, but I kind of know now what went wrong and I won't make that mistake again. So at the time in Australia, there wasn't really as much forgiveness So that's why I started to cook this idea that if it was going to come back, that it would come back from the United States, from a new operating base there than here, because they had this like culture of mail order and a much bigger market. And so that's more or less why we as a family moved there in 1997 to take what we'd learnt with version one and try to get version two funded with VC money and do it again. And Melanie, to her credit, was willing to come along for the ride. And, and our daughter Lola and our son Roman was actually born in New York City. So Wow. And how did that adventure go? Um, timing was a bit despicable. Well, first of all, reimagined the business as an online only. And remember, this is 1997, 98. It was like very, very early days of the internet. The browser was mosaic, I think, at the time. Uh, worked with some Australians who were graduating from Harvard Business School on a plan that would basically involve uh, an online business that would have two stores, one in Seattle, one in New York City, and um, but they would be there as showcases more than as where the serious volume would come out of. Uh, raised angel money from the guy who was the CEO of Land's End and a couple of other people who founded an early e-commerce site called 911 Gifts, which became Red Envelope. I don't know if you remember any of these things. One of the founders actually was a guy called Scott Galloway, who is now a professor at NYU Stern and a bit of a personality in the sort of the tech business space. He's got a podcast called Pivot which I'd recommend, but Scott Galloway is kind of like the Howard Stern of the tech business world at the moment. But uh, yeah, so I had some very high quality, high profile backers and raised enough money to develop the prototype with colleagues at an online firm called Organic in New York, where I was working in my day job as a brand strategist. But then the NASDAQ crashed in about 99 and just perfectly wrong time for me in terms of getting the follow-up funding that would make that angel round worthwhile. So it all kind of basically got dissolved and got caught up in the crash of the NASDAQ, which brought every e-commerce business down and didn't discriminate between truly interesting ideas like our community consumption idea, which was effectively what it was. And we got lumped with eToys and Pets.com and all of those other you know, big box um, online retail. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, yeah. But I guess the, the silver lining of that time was that you got to sort of make a lot of new contacts and work with Silicon Valley on some of the new tech coming through and that helped you build some more brands, gather the info to then, uh, I guess, a little later um, launch in with the TEDx yeah. phenomenon. Yeah, everything kind of... Um links onto everything else. And the reason why I got involved with TED was that the founder of TED, Richard Saul Woman, was one of the people who received one of those catalogs one year and really loved it. Told me after the fact that he thought it reminded him of the whole earth catalog from the 70s or Stuart Brand and all of that, the well and all of that kind of hippie California Berkeley stuff. Yeah. And invited me to the TED conference in 1992 or three on the condition that I brought a thousand of those catalogs with me to give to everyone who was there. So that was like, oh, okay, that feels like a bit of a win-win. Because it was, even in those days, no one had heard of TED. It was this just very private gathering of, you know, 500 tech titans, but it was- It was quite lo-fi in the beginning, it was wasn't Paul it? Paul Allen yeah. and Bill Gates and Yaron Lanier. Yeah, there were a lot of people who were like celebrities in that. Yeah, I don't think the production of it was that grand in the beginning, though, was it? Well, it it wasn't. um, It was a live event. I think they used to video some of the talks because they'd make DVD sets, which they'd distribute to the attendees after the fact. But um, the genesis of TED was that Richard Worman was um, 
a very curious, interesting guy with an architecture background who realized back in the 80s that he was having the most interesting conversations in long-haul flights with people who were working in either technology, entertainment, or design. So TED is an acronym for those three things. And the TED conference became the dinner party that his house wasn't big enough to host, where he got all of those people together and invited a handful of them to stand up and in 18 minutes tell everyone else what they were working on and why it was interesting. So the first TED conference was in 1984, and the Macintosh computer was launched at that conference. The first one was such a financial failure that the second one didn't happen until 1992 or something. And the one I went to was the fourth TED conference in 1993, and that was in Kobe, Japan. And that's where it was like, it was completely blew my mind because I wasn't really a conference guy. Just this diversity of having um, a sequence of speakers and performers who functionally didn't have anything to do with each other. There'd be like a Zen master followed by Yo-Yo Ma playing something, followed by like a glass artist and then a astrophysicist and then artificial intelligence, you know, guru. And it was the combination of all of these things. The sum was greater than the sum of the parts, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I became a periodic TED attendee and in exchange for my attendance, I would make T-shirts for the speakers and the VIPs and then ultimately for all of the attendees. So I was the TED T-shirt guy. Um, (laughs) I was the TED T-shirt guy, official merchant for the TED conferences. And in the years that I wasn't going broke, I would try to be there in attendance and renew those friendships. And then, you know, cut to 2009 when uh, Lara Stein was brought on to create this licensing program for TED where they would basically license their brand globally to individuals within cities around the world and and let those trusted individuals run like effectively a franchise of their event, and that's the TEDx program. And they wanted a safe pair of hands in uh, Sydney, and so they talked me into doing it. I remember going home. We were running a little Remo shop on Bondi Road with an online back end sort of a small-scale version of what I'd envisioned uh, for the US. Um, And I went home that day and I I said to Melanie, you know, Ted, I've asked me if I'll do this thing. It's going to involve hundreds and hundreds of hours of work. It'll leverage all of my networks and we can't, by definition, make any money out of it. What do you think? (laughs) Uh, I was like, oh, that sounds nice, darling. (laughs) But I was about to turn 50 at the time and I thought, you know, maybe a little bit of personal rebranding is timely, you know, and and so the T-shirt guy, the coffee beans guy, the moisturiser guy can become the ideas guy by doing as good a job with TEDx Sydney as he'd done with uh, the Remo General Store. I think it's amazing how everything you'd done before dovetailed into that and it actually, you know, turned out to be a platform where you could combine all of your interests, all of your passions Mm. and help you know, disseminate it to a large number of people and kind of, in a way, uplift them with the same passions and ideas and designs and things that you've had yourself. Yeah, yeah. And because of the depth of my creative networks from the Remo days, because like you, everybody who was in that space in Sydney at the time used to be a customer of the store. So I, you know, I met a lot of filmmakers and videographers and uh, artists and designers and and architects and so when it came time to creating a team to get behind the local TED version I you know I had all those people on my speed dial so I was able to assemble a very high quality group of people relatively very quickly compared to other cities around the world you know? I was I was reading up on it and I didn't know but from what I saw online, it's like the gold standard yeah. of TED events anywhere in the world. Yeah, of TEDx events. Yes, if it's not the largest, there are some like mega events that happen in football stadiums in South America. It's certainly the gold standard and the most prestigious and is looked at as one of the events that really pushes the envelope in terms of format innovation, et cetera, and so yeah. forth. Kind of blew my mind because you shared the link with me for what oh, you just did in, yeah, in yeah. 2020. Which, which was a total, you know, you, you've to had use to, an overused word, a total pivot from uh, what it had been. Yeah, that's right. So that must have been head-spinningly challenging to organise and deliver that, not only um, keeping the content fresh and appropriate for what was changing every day, but also just technically keeping it interesting 
and not just, okay, yeah, here's another live stream and here's another, oh, you yeah. know what I mean? You work well, really hard with it technically. Couldn't, it couldn't feel like a live stream. Also, we're in that situation where 2,000 people had spent $360 for what was going to be a live event with all the bells and whistles and a merchandise bag and, you know, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, uh, you know, so we had to deliver comparable value. And so to deliver comparable value, we knew that it would need to be a much richer experience than just, a, you know, Facebook Live or whatever. Well, that's not the only reason, but we also looked elementally at what was the purpose of TEDx Sydney and its objective, and it's to deliver content and be a platform for the delivery of interesting stories and creativity and content from this part of the world and push it to the rest of the world, but also to build a community of people around their shared appreciation of that content. Now, both of those things you can actually do without a room full of people. So then we had to figure out, well, how do we do that? Well, there's the streaming bit, but then how do we have a parallel conversation happening in the breaks? How do I meet other people who were there face-to-face? Okay, so then we had the video chat rooms there were like little baby Zoom tables where you kind of randomly join a table of up to six other attendees and just like shoot the breeze for 10 minutes. And that was fun. Yeah, like the the whole platform we created and the way it navigated around, I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, this this is, <laughs> there's so much, so much work in this and so much room for error technically. Putting that together and then delivering it to them at the time, I honestly marveled at it. You must have spent a huge amount of money and time building, honing, developing that Not money because we never have a huge amount of money to spend. (laughs) So we're good at begging favours and getting partnerships and aligning ourselves with companies and brands. It's kind of a win-win because, say, for the example of that platform, we're working with a registration partner who we still work with called Joma Blue. Now, their business model went to hell as well because their business was like big live events. So they had to reinvent themselves as a virtual event registration platform and they needed a bold and shiny case study. Right. A and B, they had an idea of the functionality that they were going to include, but they didn't have our visceral sense of what people actually want to do when they're online. So we became effectively co-developers of their product, which they own, and they can on-sell to uh, companies that that can pay proper dollar, (laughs) and we become like the poster boy. Yeah, yeah. Which is oftentimes the way we get what we need and deliver the value that we need to deliver in order to get what we need. But on the virtual platform, the other little fun little bit, every time um, we've had a sort of a wow moment for an event, there's just been something that needed to elevate it and make it, you know, more special. And so this last year, it was the virtual audience. So the... Two or 3,000 people that were sitting at home on their computers, that was the true audience for and the participating registered audience for the event. But in order to create the energy in the studio that we needed, because we had like eight cameras and, and all of that stuff, to give the hosts and the speakers and the performers someone to perform to, we worked with our um, AV partner, Innovative, to develop this idea for, um, you know, you see increasingly now it's not, um, it's not unique, but it's a, a wall of faces, which is effectively a big Zoom meeting. Yep. So there was a 25-metre wall of faces facing the speakers in the studio. So there were three audiences for the speakers and the performers. There was the 20 or 30 people sitting at cafe table, chairs, and, you know, socially distanced with masks on, just so that there were some, like, live bodies in the room. Yeah. Then there was the thousands of people online who are watching through their monitors at home and then commenting and loving and liking and hearting and reacting and asking questions. But then there was this like Zoom audience that were projected on the screen there in a grid of 150, 200 faces. And here's a technical challenge because there was a time delay between, you know, Zoom and the streaming platform was like a 50-second time delay. So we couldn't have... (laughs) So they actually needed to be off the platform and just on Zoom. So we needed to create this whole sign-up 
page yep. for people who are willing to spend one of the sessions of the day as part of the virtual studio audience. Yeah. And that worked really well in surprising and remarkable ways because oftentimes someone would react to something that a speaker would say. There was an Indigenous guy, Keenan Mundine, talking about his real tragically difficult upbringing and one of the people on the wall made a heart with their fingers of their hand. And then the Stu Birchmore, our director, saw that and said, let's, let's zoom in on that and then let's pan back. And they panned back and then all of a sudden the other people in the meeting could see what was happening on the Zoom. So then they started to replicate it. And then before too long, the whole wall was like making hearts with their arms. And, and Keenan could see this happening in real time. And so then he started crying. Wow. Then Brendan, the technical director, pulled me aside and he said, Mate, you see what's happening out there? It's unbelievable. So that was an unanticipated emotional response to the thing. And then we had a singer do our after party, Catherine Alcorn. Yeah. She had spent, like all, probably Kate's the same, but she'd spent the whole year becoming like a Zoom master. And so she knew how to engage yeah. in a way that the speakers didn't. So the, okay, so everyone write on a piece of paper where you're from and hold it up, you know. So she worked that wall really, really well and that just created an amazing amount of energy. So so it would be great to take what we did last year and like really smash it and see how far we can push that format because it because it's a very scalable format, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Even when we return to normal, whenever that is. Yeah can't imagine that there wouldn't be um, a residual uh, virtual. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. It seems like it's going to become a sort of standard part of events in the future, doesn't it? Even yeah. when you do have two or 3,000 people there at the venue, you're going to have the the, um, the remote audience remote as well. Audience. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's getting more complicated all the time, isn't it, mate? <laughs> ah! Wow. I mean, it's like it's, it's so cool. It's like when I mean, you're event producer slash creative director slash artistic director you've combined all your skills it's really great to watch because i know well most people don't start off their careers in the thing in their passion or the thing that they're going to end up you know doing for the bulk of their life no so i love hearing when people just well they go out as long as you've got a work ethic and you keep going and you learn and you meet this person and you keep going and just keep looking for the silver lining and going, okay, okay, what else can I do? And, oh, here's an opportunity. How can I, you know, make the most of that? And like you, you're sort of, you're on the other side you, of 50. You've you got to play the long game. You've got to play the long you game. You've got to play yep. the long game. And, uh, you know, I've got another brand, General Thinking, which is like 20 years old. It's a sort of a private LinkedIn. It's a social network of people in the world doing interesting work. And it's lived on a number of online platforms over the years. And then it's gone away for years. And then I brought it back and then it's gone away. And then I'm, currently it's in hibernation again. <laughs> but like the Remo brand, it's kind of one of those things that I, I feel that there's still a future for it. I'm not exactly sure what the format of it is. Yep. And it's nice to have something that you haven't done yet that you want to do. I mean, I've had a long-standing vision for a physical hub that would more or less aggregate everything I've learned from the Remo General Store and everything I've learned from TEDx Sydney and general thinking and just put it all into the one space. Think of it as a theatre restaurant for ideas, right? Which with a very strong retail food and beverage component facing the street to sort of create that energy and suck the people up. But that requires a lot of capital and backers and I haven't been very good at raising money over the years. So... Uh, <laughs> That just might be one of those things that, you know, may or may not happen, but I'm ready for it if and when the opportunity arises. Sounds cool, mate. Keep us in the loop. Yeah. Kate and I'll be there with bells on to, <laughs> to, to, to launch. Um, a lot of people have lost their jobs this year or their roles have shrunk and we've got kids who are leaving school in an era of great uncertainty. Any words of wisdom for people out there um, as to, you know, how to keep going and find their path um travel hopefully yeah travel hopefully to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive that's a one of my favorite um robert louis stevenson, robert louis stevenson quotes yeah. yeah so yeah maintaining your spirit and continuing to seek you know and seek and you shall find basically i think the word of wisdom is to just do something start something that you wouldn't even imagine that ticks half of your boxes but whatever it is do it until 
something else comes up which ticks another box and then move on to it. So if you kind of look at life in terms of steps like that, by definition, you only move from, you know, A to B to C if that step is like better than the one before. I mean, maybe that's a bit glib because it doesn't necessarily address the people who have had the rug completely pulled out from underneath them. Well, Uh, I mean, you you just said start, so that's pretty fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. Take a step. Yeah, make a podcast, do something, (laughs) create something, um, get a job cleaning the pool. You know, I think um, anything you do is better than just sitting at home and contemplating and feeling pity. Yeah, absolutely. Good advice. I just, I'm thinking of the TEDx conference again. When I was looking online, some of the TEDx events are like super, super basic and and there's your one. Do you think for the the brand and the way they've sort of handed the franchise out, do you think they, you know, they've taken the right approach, just kind of getting it rolling, or do you think they should have been a bit more selective? Um, That's a really interesting question, and uh, I think it was just trying to remember the year I had a conversation with the head of TED, the guy that bought it from the founder, Chris Anderson. It was at one of these retreats that we go to from time to time, and I forget exactly where it was, but... First of all, I said, so Chris, Ted is like the new Rotary, right? And that didn't go over too well. <laughs> he didn't necessarily <laughs> think of Ted as, as the next generation Rotary. But then I got serious and said, look, one of the values that you say the Ted brand is about is like tolerance and diversity. And yet there's this criticism that you lose control of the brand and the quality control because no matter how vigilant you are, there has been and there will be licensees in cities whose sensibilities are too spooky, whose suits are too shiny, who, you know, will not necessarily run an event that has the flavour of TED. And some people think that's a bad thing, but actually when you think about it, the crazier it gets at the fringes, the more reinforcing it is of that value that you have attached to the brand, which is diversity and uh, tolerance, right? So. In some ways, it's kind of like, yeah, we meant to do that. <laughs> we meant for some of it to be crazy just so that you could see how yeah. committed to diversity and radical transparency and yeah, all those right. other things we were. Okay, yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, but they are pretty careful about um, the big events, you know, like right. um, they only give licenses for one year. Uh, so, well, not for me because right. I'm one of the handful of global events where they've sort of made long-term commitments. But um, generally, if you're TEDx, XYZ City and uh, you run an event, they will find out if there's been selling from the stage or partners involved in the curation and then they won't renew the license. Okay, yeah, gotcha. And as far as, you know, monetizing it or (coughs) making a decent living, you've got, you know, family, kids, whatever, have you you made a decent income from it or is it the other opportunities that have come as a result of delivering this extraordinary event that have sort of led to... I'm the mug who doesn't get the spin-off opportunities. Everyone who works with me gets amazing, (laughs) goes to amazing jobs, you know, like the, the TEDx Sydney alumni are now in the most powerful... Uh, you know, best jobs in the city. The Edwina, who was our head of curation, is now head of talks and ideas at the Sydney Opera House. Our ex-director of marketing is the head of marketing at digital marketing at the Sydney Opera House. And uh, so making ends meet by having a diverse portfolio of things that I do, and not just TEDx Sydney, there's the Remo General Store, there's the occasional speaking gig, there's the occasional consulting gig as a sort of a creative strategist who pulls out the coloured pencils and tries to help people kind of envision what they're doing graphically, which is kind of a skill that I've developed and put forward from time to time. But uh, it's really, it's pretty month to month, I have to say. You know, it's not, um, as I said to you before, I'm good at a lot of things, but making money has never really been one of them. A lot of what I do is connecting people and getting joy from that, but I don't get a clip from yeah. Introducing you to someone who you then go off and develop yeah. a TV program with, you know. Yeah. Well, it's one of the beautiful things about you because you're driven, you know, by wanting to help people really and getting a kick out of seeing, you know, people come together and create something that singularly they wouldn't have done and, and it's yeah. a, a beautiful thing, isn't it? And yeah, no, you- I, I, um, financial security is, is a good thing, you know, like um, it's not like I uh, – 
I'm avoiding that. But, uh, you know, it's not the driver. Yeah. I don't spend money on clothes. You see, I wear the same thing every day. Uh, I don't spend money on clothes or art or, you know, I like to eat good food and swim in the ocean and, uh, you know, living in Bondi requires a certain level of um, financial level of income <laughs> just by virtue of the, prop- the property thing. But, um, yeah. but we split our time between Bondi and the Hooksby River, which is, um, you know, once again, a fairly rustic and basic, uh, simple yeah. kind of thing. Is that and that's one of the ways I guess you've handled the stress and the ups and downs of of the journey you've taken is to go go to the shack, get in the water. That's been. Your- I don't know. Did I tell you my shack story? Because it was um, 2016. My mother was dying. Uh, she died that year. I was you know having some issues with my siblings. Um, business was so sort of stressful that year. There was a lot going on, and I I, I remember going and swimming at the icebergs in a race and then coming home to Lamrock Avenue we lived at the time and um, sitting in front of the computer and, and getting a little bit of a sort of a blind spot out of one of my eyes and saying to Melanie, hmm, I don't think that's a good thing. But it went away. But but I did, you know, go to the hospital and got the full neurological checkup and there was no stroke or there was no whatever the thing is that I forget the acronym for that is kind of in the stroke family. But it was um, a sufficiently sobering kind of reminder of mortality to make me think, okay, how do I design a life that breaks this pressure, which is a little bit fed by living in Bondi because it is a pretty intense environment. And I sat in a cafe um, down down the road from where we are sitting now called First Edition, and I pulled out a pad and a pencil, and I drew a future week. I called it Life 2.0. And I drew a future week, and I had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in Bondi, and then I had Friday, Saturday, Sunday in a place called Shack. <laughs> but it was an abstraction. So Monday to Friday was all about the network, social, and the Shack was about resting, reading, reflection, so this was an abstraction. I took it home and I showed Melanie and I said, okay, here's another plan. What do you think of this? She doesn't do abstract. So she immediately got online and started like Googling and uh, we tried to work out uh, how we would go about actually buying a real shack. And so we figured, well, downsizing. Our daughter had left to study in Melbourne and then um, the Netherlands, and so we didn't need three bedrooms. We could do with two, and so the long and the short of it is we we downsized in Bondi and used that equity to buy a real shack yeah. on the Hawkesby River, water access only, Wow, uh, one hour from Sydney, and we've more or less spent just about every weekend there since. Uh, we leave on Friday and come back Sunday or Monday or uh, well during COVID we swapped it and we based ourselves there yeah, okay. because this was Corona Beach, right? Yeah, <laughs> I've seen some photos on uh, your Instagram and stuff, and it looks beautiful. Yeah, um, wow, mate, what a! It's uh, like a, a, have you seen that television series Shit's Creek? Oh God, it's so good, Kate. This, and I completely hooked. well, this is Shit's Creek on the Hawkesbury River. <laughs> I mean. There's the adorable gay couple. There's the eccentric, uh, you know, ex, uh, you know, so leader of the community. Of, yeah. It's it's pretty interesting. Wow, it's like a little country town. Wow, that's that's cool. Um, talking of social media, you're you know a bit of a visionary, and so on. <laughs> I got a question I'd like to ask you just on what's happening in the social media space, and just with the censorship that's been happening a lot lately obviously the potential that we all saw of of the internet and how it opened up free speech and all of these things in the beginning and you know it's sort of heading off in a certain path that that's uh troubling how do you deal with that and where do you see it going well it's funny you should say that because um building community around a merchandise offer or a platform for ideas in the past, I've done a lot of online community building, but they tended to be walled gardens, you know, private networks and have kind of withered because um, of the development energy required to, you know, keep those platforms current and functional, but also people just have limited bandwidth and time to check in on a whole 
bunch of different networks. And so there's been a lot of push to, well, Facebook's doing, you know, just integrate Facebook with what you're doing or integrate Instagram with what you're doing. And that's where fish where the fish are, you know, that's where the people are. Forget about, you know, your own proprietary um, network because no one's got the time. No one's got the time. Now, interestingly, I think people are increasingly wary of losing control of their data and there's privacy concerns and, and all of that. So I think the private network is kind of coming back in vogue and people are probably willing to trade some inconvenience of having to like check into another place for the convenience of knowing that the data's yours, they can't turn the switch off. I'm talking from a business, business person's point of view here more than... Um, and not necessarily addressing the societal question of is Twitter a publisher or just a common carrier. I personally think that um, they can't just be a little bit pregnant. I they, completely agree. If they're going to actually go in, they have to really go in properly and yeah. staff up and become responsible for the content. I don't know how that works. but Yeah. I agree. Literally in the last week, I've just moved over to uh, DuckGoDuck or whatever it's called, that, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, search engine uh, platform and extension yeah. so that it's no longer going solely through Google. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm out of here, guys. And so I think what you said is right. I think there's great opportunities mm. right now for those new There's new lots ponds. changing. It's kind of interesting time to be alive, I think. Totally. Like it's it's uh, dawning on the one hand, but lots of opportunity on the yeah. other. And as we talked about earlier, yeah. it's finding the silver lining and staying positive and, you know, just find a way. Yes. <laughs> find don't, a way. Don't give up. Keep moving. Keep Do moving. not panic. You got it. Yeah. Mate, that's a, that's a good point to wrap up. Oh, great. <laughs> Um, such a pleasure really having enjoyed a chat. It. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Good questions and uh, I think it flowed well. So as soon as you get that whippersnipper out of there, <laughs> we're good to go. Sounds good, mate. Thanks for coming along today. Thanks, Lee. I trust you enjoyed this conversation. I always come away from a conversation with Remo feeling energised. To me, that's the value of a person. Do I come away feeling inspired, uplifted? Or do I feel slimed and introverted? It's an interesting exercise, isn't it? It's a great guide as to the kind of people you want to surround yourself with if you hope to succeed. To find out more about Remo and his work, head to remojeffray.com or tedxsydney.com. You can find these links in the show notes. Speaking of success and creative talent, next week is one of the most sought-after television directors on the planet, Kate Dennis. She was nominated for a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Director for her work on The Handmaid's Tale. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Millevich production. <laughs>